0: healthcare now paid for by integrated physician network this program was recorded to air at this time healthcare premiums through the roof so much to think about when it comes to healthcare who do you talk to where do you go next well we've got your answer to navigating the healthcare world welcome to healthcare now with host mark Chia, larry jones and from orlando medical news john kelly and now let's head into the healthcare now studios
1: Good morning and welcome to Healthcare Now. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on healthcare issues that affect you, as well as promote our objective to build an educated healthcare consumer group and help people understand how to navigate our complex healthcare system. This is Dr. Mark, and I'm joined, as always, with Larry Jones and John Kendall. Good morning, Dr. Mark. So, let's uh, talk a little bit uh, about some updates. Previous shows, we've started out
2: talking about uh, COVID vaccines. Right. you got some numbers for us? I do. Uh, As of this morning, I believe 63% of the U.S. have received one vaccine, Mm -hmm. and half the country have been fully vaccinated.
1: So you're feeling that's a pace... Better than what what would be expected. I mean, what I mean. Everyone has an opinion mm-hmm. about this, but I'm I'm curious. Yeah, how you even feel about it.
2: even though the J and J fell off for 11 days right. on the pause, it seems that we are now pretty much consistently generating about three million vaccines a day.
1: Yep, yep. But I know, and that was a big deal when we had that first three million day. Exactly, which was really a three and a half million right, day. Right, right. Yeah, let's talk the J and J. So, uh, as I think everybody has followed, mm-hmm. uh, the CDC and the FDA. Uh, held the use of of that vaccine after there were a number of women who had clotting issues for 11 days, 11 days it was out Mm -hmm. uh, out of pocket. And then they turned around and said, basically, you know, that the, the risk of not having a vaccine is, is much, 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 much greater than the risk of this possibly being linked to the vaccine. And we should point out like the differences between the vaccines, the J and J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine are different than the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, J and J and AstraZeneca have a similar technology, and the idea with both of those are you know what we're, we're going to do? Like we've talked about J and J being one dose, uh, and it doesn't require the same refrigeration. Right. So the idea here is it's going to be mass I think produced, it's normal
2: room temperature, normal room temperature, yeah. so they yeah. can
1: ship it. It can be delivered, and in in countries, uh, you know, in in third world countries and places that we need to address this. Yeah. The, the Pfizer, Pfizer Moderna just, just can't work. Yeah, yeah, it won't work. So yeah. so it's a little concerning that there was this pause because it really affected people's opinions. We already had a lot of folks, what, 40% of the population was like, yeah. are skeptical. Skeptical. Yep. yep. So, so you kind of hear a lot of things. Now, I understand in our society, full disclosure, full discussion is the, the name of the game. And here's a situation where it may have jumped the gun a bit. Uh, by pausing the vaccine without investigating it, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, because it really has it really has set things back from that particular thing. Because no there, question, I think it was uh, Seminole County. One of the sites had uh, a huge number of the J vaccines, and they gave out like three hundred doses. Exactly, they had three thousand doses. People chilling up, but you yep. know,
2: there's a couple things, Doctor Mark. I think that the J&J pause has done, not only has it created that skepticism you're talking about, Mm -hmm. and it's estimated now that 20 to 40 percent of people are rethinking whether they're even going to get the vaccines. But it was reported this morning by the New York Times that millions of Americans are not getting the second dose of their COVID-19 vaccines at the time and then they're supposed to be getting it. And they're saying now that 5 million people are nearly 8 percent of all people who got their first shot, have missed their second shot time frame.
1: And if you think back to when things were, as they, things are going well, but when they kind of started up and we were on this upramp, there was a discussion in the news about what your coverage was with one dose J&J vaccine versus one dose of Pfizer or Moderna. Right. And there were people that were looking at those numbers, which were very, very early numbers, exactly. and saying, I don't need the other dose. Right. And then add to that, if anyone had a reaction to the first dose, they're less likely to take a second dose or if they knew somebody that had a reaction. So, you
2: know, over the next couple of years, people that aren't vaccinated or had their second dose are going to have some issues. And I thought there was an interesting article in the paper the other day. And it was entitled, How to Replace a Lost COVID Vaccination Card. Right, right. And it seems that wherever there are COVID vaccination shots, it turns out there are people losing their COVID cards. Just leaving them on the floor. They leave them in the bathroom. They drop them in the parking lot. Sometimes they even let them slip from their grasp in the observation area while they're waiting 15 minutes after they've had their shot. And they're now in Seminole County. They have even instructed people to watch and observe if people drop them to pick them up. And the, the issue here is replacing those cards you can't. is not as easy as no. people think it is. No, I don't think.
1: It's a big hassle. There's really not a mechanism.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the moral of the story is, we're, and we can tell our listeners, treat your vaccination card like you do your driver's license. Yeah, or your, You know, people
1: told me, put it inside your passport. If you have yes. a passport because it's going to be very important yes. when it comes to travel. Take a picture of it, and put it yep. on your phone. Yep. That
2: way you always have it.
1: But don't post it on your Instagram. That was nothing <laughs> that came out. <laughs> that's right. They're really well, really your birth easy dates to count on that card. Oh, there's all sorts yeah. of yeah. and it's it's yeah. a very simple card. So I think yeah. that's something in the next edition. And yeah. so let me just kind of a little mm-hmm. foreshadowing of the next piece of information that's going to be misinformation. Okay. When do we need our booster? So right. I, I had my shot. I think uh, right in the first round. So yep. I'm, I'm three, four months into this. Uh, the initial discussion was you're going to need it at three months with no data to back that up. Then it was pushed four months, six months. Pfizer's saying it's going to be a year, and the White House put out a statement the other day yes. that it was six months, nine right? to twelve months. Yes, yeah. so yep. nine to twelve. Mm-hmm. So so no one really knows, and we need a better way to figure that out. But you know, my thoughts are we need to get everybody vaccinated. Before we start opening things up for a second round, um, I think we haven't heard as much about the variants um, in the last three four weeks. So there's, the, the data is being collected. There's no question, uh, but it's just how it's being interpreted and delivered to us. Well, well Doctor Dr. Mark, we
3: lo- I'm sorry, Lee. Mm-hmm. we look at this like the flu, um, where they look at the top three variants from the previous year. I think that's what the majority of the American public expects. How do you feel about that? Well, the
1: variants for for this particular animal are, are different than the flu, right? So there's the, the actual COVID, the, the, the virus that causes COVID-19 has some variations, but not truly like totally different brands. Like there are, are a number of different flu viruses. And so then, then you're right, they do the top three. In this one, the companies feel as though one vaccine is covering them all and they may be able to tweak that vaccine in the booster so you're still covering 100% of what, what we expect whereas with the flu shots we know we're not covering 100%. I mean that's just a different thing and and that's why it's given once a year not because your immunity drops off to that shot you know they call it like a trivalent shot it'll have three the it's it's because the season of the flu comes back up and we know there's going to be different varieties of the flu available so it is a different animal and a different kind of vaccine
2: you know current current data suggests that this immunity right now lasts six months but experts say that even if the immunity lasts longer the rapidly spreading these variants that you're talking about john may introduce a need for that annual booster
1: yeah and since i think we're like running through the segment we were planning on talking about a couple of other things but let's let's go to the next discussion of okay we're vaccinated are we safe And the answer to that is the world has to be vaccinated because world travel uh, to America is extremely common. And you look at what's going on around the world and some countries are having a really rough time with Mm COVID-19. India is having a really rough time. Terrible time right now.
2: Over 300,000 infections a day in India right right
1: now. Right. And it's ironic that that last show we were talking about how the United States funds the bill for the development of all drugs in the world. Right. But here I'm going to tell you: yeah. if we got to pay to have the world vaccinated, we need to pay to have the world vaccinated. Exactly. I mean, other countries need, will come on board and assist, no doubt. But since we are, we you know have so many travelers, we're not going to be safe. There'll be pockets that keep popping up over and over again.
2: It's interesting you mention that, Dr. Mark, because the Associated Press had an article this week in the paper talking about on this AstraZeneca vaccine. We may not even bring it into this country because we have enough vaccine. If everyone in America wanted a vaccine of the three that we have, and we're going to turn that AstraZeneca into foreign countries.
1: Yeah, I would predict that that's exactly what's going to happen. That was kind of the play as it was. Mm -hmm. I know AstraZeneca had had approached the FDA for clearance. Yes, uh, but I think with these issues, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, AstraZeneca has had similar issues reported yeah. overseas. Um, that I, I don't think, think they've
2: issued a, them an emergency use author, the authorization have in, not. in the U.S. Yet. They have not.
1: Yeah. Right, right. So right. so it's definitely something, in the, and it may just all work out, but I don't want it to look like, oh, well, we're pushing off the crappy stuff to the other guys mm-hmm. and gals and, and, you know, good luck. Right. I mean, that's really not the opinion. The opinion isn't that either of these vaccines are dangerous. Right. Uh, they, they realize that all of them have side effects. Right. And that it's just, you know, to, to go ahead and compare, you know, what the dangers of COVID-19 are versus that thing. And it's, yeah. it's, it's like we, we do this with everything in medicine. It's a risk reward. Yes. And very few things in medicine are as highly publicized as the COVID nineteen vaccine, would you agree? I mean, we know Absolutely. more about that. Absolutely. More people know more about that than about anything. They've
2: they've, they've been forced yeah. to uh, to learn, right? But you know, one of the uh, we were going to talk a little bit about. We're probably not going to get to it, but some of the assumptions for twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two in healthcare. The biggest assumption is the pandemic will continue to impact healthcare delivery.
1: Yep. So yep. we're
2: really still talking about vaccines.
1: No, we are talking about yeah. vaccines. Yeah. We're talking about the world treatment. I'll throw in a personal yep. note. My 16-year-old okay. got his first dose this weekend, right really? after right after a soccer game. And uh, Did his, he have any uh, side no, effects? Nothing. He just kept telling people he was shot in the other arm because he knew his buddies would punch him in the arm that he actually got the shot in. But, uh, <laughs> nope, he did great. He kids. did really, really well. That's and great. And so I'm looking forward to seeing, to, to your point of what happens mm-hmm. next, that age group get lower because we do know that the kids are spreading that right. virus, and that's going to be... They're sort of like our own little foreign countries, aren't yeah. they? So, and some <laughs> yeah.
2: experts believe that if we don't vaccinate some of the children, we'll never get to that herd immunity.
1: Right, right. And it and it, do, yeah. it does make sense. I think in the beginning, the idea of just focusing the high-risk group made perfect sense because our goal was to make sure we did not inundate the hospitals again. Right. I mean that, and, and that goal was very much achieved. And we talk about little bumps in the numbers. We're still doing very well in most states, not all states. I know Michigan's kind of fa- fallen behind again, but, but in most states, we're doing very well, you know, keeping our hospital resources reasonable and available. And I think, you know, that's that's really a positive thing. But now it's time to start thinking about yeah. true herd, herd yeah. immunity.
3: So, but Dr. T- Mark, I think mm-hmm. the moral of the story today is to return to normalcy means we need to get everyone vaccinated yep. and get to herd immunity. Please uh, share your thoughts about... Uh, hesitancy and vaccination join our conversation 407-701-7424 or email us at now at orlandomedicalnews.com we'll be right back
4: Angela sells Orlando also known as your realtor on call Central Florida's relocation and luxury real estate specialist looking for concierge services Relocating to Central Florida, buying, selling, buying and selling, helping to maximize your return and fighting for the best deal. Preferred lenders available. Specializing in relocation for physicians, healthcare professionals, and high net worth individuals. Assisting with location placement, school tours, banking and financial connections, introductions to athletic and social memberships testimonials and references available upon request. Reach me 24-7, text 407-616-3513 or email Angela at AngelaSellsOrlando.com. And always remember to connect on LinkedIn. Be healthy, be safe, and reopen this great nation's economy.
5: Are your annual wellness visits 60% completed? Medicare requires 60%. ThoughtSwift provides a turnkey solution, reducing AWV's 5 to 20 minutes. Software-generated care plans, providing patient conversations, and billing codes. Improving macro MIPS, and HEDIS. Net $125 plus per AWV. Interested? John Fogarty, 609-605-6859, 609-605-6859.
0: It's not really a long surgery. The recovery time was practically nothing. Pretty much a piece of cake.
6: I look at my scar as my battle scar, you know.
0: I won the battle. Went from desk door to I'm me again. Yeah, I am enjoying life. I can count on tomorrow.
7: Barostim is an option for heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. To learn more about the therapy and important safety information, please visit www.cvrx.com.
2: Welcome back to Healthcare Now. We have a very special guest on our show this morning, Dr. Michael Howell. He is the regional medical executive for the Southeast U.S. for Cigna Healthcare and the medical senior director representing North and Central Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands. He's a board certified internal medicine and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Dr. Howell has strategic interface with major employer groups physician and healthcare organizations, and others in the clinical community is devoted to improving quality and affordability for healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Howell. We are delighted to have you this morning.
1: Absolutely, Dr. Howell. Yeah, Mm -hmm. thanks for coming in. This is Dr. Dr. Mark. Yeah, no, it's uh, going to be a great show today. We've been looking forward to this for weeks. Right. So our show's purpose is to bring all areas of healthcare to our listening audience to educate them how they might better manage their healthcare, and we have a lot to talk about. So... Tell me a little bit about your background and your role at Cigna.
7: Well, thanks, uh, Dr. Mark. Uh, So you already mentioned that I'm board certified in internal medicine, and I I repeat that only because that particular training for me helped me to be the investigative, uh, curious, innovative kind of doc that I am. It's also created in me that desire to learn more, be curious about how things work. And I applied that to both medicine and taking care of my patients, but also applied it on the business side of my career as well. Uh, I actually started out my career in Tampa and was one of the founding physicians for the Tampa Community Health Center, now known in the Tampa market as the Tampa Family Healthcare, which is a pretty big uh, uh, program out there now. Mm -hmm. I spent uh, several years practicing uh, in private practice in Orlando and in Maitland, Florida before I transitioned over to Become a healthcare executive for Prudential and at the U.S. Healthcare. After a short stint there, I moved over to the hospital side and provided medical care as an internist there. But also was a physician executive for Orlando Health with roles as both the chief medical officer and chief medical right. quality officer. So I had a lot of opportunity to try some other things, work with a lot of great a physicians lot of experience, incredible
2: experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean yeah. That, that's pretty um,
1: unique amongst physicians. I mean, because most of us. Kind of pick one path, and, I mean, the fact that you've had that that varied background is must be a, a big bolster to your being able to do the job that you do today.
7: It, it is, because I've had a chance to work with all types of physicians, and I've had to learn to do things at a time when people said you couldn't do that or it wasn't what we were doing. So we were able to take two sticks, put them together, make a fire, and start a new program, new project, and, <laughs> right. and, and make things happen. So I mean,
1: yeah, to that point, Cigna has been a, a very, really the most progressive yes. group when it comes to effective ways that payers, you know, move forward and value-based care models. And and that's something that Larry and I talk about in the show a lot. We talk about IPN and its involvement with Cigna. Could you, can you talk about that a little bit?
7: Yeah, so um, you mentioned Cigna has been very progressive. There was a time, I've been in Cigna for many, many years, there was a time when Cigna, you know, really wasn't in that favorite position. Mm -hmm. And over the past several years, we've made a very strong effort to change how we did business with physicians and physician organizations. We've changed our model for how we work with hospitals and health systems. So I guess most importantly, we've also been able to bring some great products to the market for employers or clients in the Central Florida uh, market. So we've really reinvented ourselves, I'd like to say, Mm -hmm. to be what folks needed but the part that I'm most proud of is how we started to uh, interact with physicians and physician communities, and and listen more, and try to change the way healthcare is delivered. And it's something I'm very proud of, and we need to continue to keep doing.
2: Well, Doctor Howell, as you know, uh, IPN, we've had a uh, value based program with you for six years. We just started our six years and wow. six year in March, and you have absolutely been the leader and the trainer for all of our physicians and our our administrative team. So tell me a little bit about what do you think the most com- important components are to value-based care?
7: I would tell you that collaboration and communication are, are, are at the top of my list. In, in, in a nutshell, relationships matter. And when you talk about our, our, our track record, it, it really started out with you're in my relationship over time. Exactly. I got to meet Dr. Mark along the journey yep. and, you know, we've been yep. great collaboration partners as well. But in a nutshell, so I start there. Yes. Another piece I would have to say that makes uh, value-based care so important is uh, with our relationship is transparency with data. Right. We, we tend to always say that if you're going to make something happen as a physician, we need to see the numbers. We need to see what the research shows so we can see if it's valid or not. Yeah. And what we've learned on our journey together is you know, we give you as much data as we can. We be as transparent as we can. And when we don't have the answer, we then sit down together, figure out what we can find or what we can get to, and then use that data to make it yes. actionable so we can now do something with it.
2: Right. And,
7: and uh, you're you know, absolutely to to
2: Dr. right, Dr. Howard. Value
7: based care is yeah, different from fee for service, so yep. we have to treat it differently.
2: So, talk about the role of how the PCP has changed in the healthcare and physician engagement importance in value-based care?
7: The PCP role has moved them to the front of the line in value-based care. And the PCP now has the opportunity to be the driver of care, driver of appropriate care, to help organize what patients need when they go to the doctor to improve their health and well-being. We didn't always have that. And not to um, say anything negative about specialty care, Mm -hmm. but we tended to just refer cases out and we didn't help to manage the whole person. The PCP's role has changed and through value-based arrangements, we're starting to be able to reward them for the work and engagement that they actually provide to the care of the total patient.
1: You know, as we uh, engage our audience here, it brings to mind that we might need to back up one step. So we've we've talked about all these topics, but... So the difference between fee-for-service and value-based care, fee for services, you go in your service, you, it, it's a certain amount of money that, that goes into certain pockets. It's fixed. Transactional. And, yeah, it doesn't yeah. really have anything right. to do with outcomes, doesn't have to do with quality. It is what it is, and that's been the historic model for quite some time, whereas value-based care models are different. And I'll, I'll let you, it, this is this is your uh, your segment here, so tell us a little bit about value-based as it would pertain, how it affects the patient. What should they know about You know, is there a doctor involved
7: in a value-based program? So fee-for-service, I like to say, is that turnstile care. Every time you go through the turnstile, you pay a fee and and, and whatever you get for that fee. Value-based care looks at the entire continuum of care or services that are provided. So I may look at it from a shared risk involvement where we put money in a pool, and if you do well based on outcomes, not just the fact that you went through the turnstile but what happens over a period of time with your care, as it improves, we then are able to reimburse you at a higher level than you might have received if you were just coming through the door and getting paid just on that per click um, metric. So, patients need to understand that when doctors are working in a value based environment, they are responsible for the entire individual. They're responsible for you going to the emergency room and when you come out of the emergency room, they're responsible for what happens to you when you come out of the inpatient setting. Back into the outpatient city, they're responsible for what your specialist may do to you when you refer them out, and are they referring you to places that are cost efficient, if you will? Meaning, are they the priced right to keep that cost of healthcare down, or are they just referring you to places that don't really pay attention to cost and just continue to spend the money and drive the healthcare cost in this country higher? So, so I know, yeah, I know you always follow value in a value based arrangement for the patient and the
1: physician. I know you follow customer satisfaction a great deal, and I think our listeners would be very interested in what you've seen with value-based medicine for for their satisfaction.
7: We have typically found that when people have all of their needs met, they are far more satisfied than the piecemeal approach that medicine, you know, has been for the past several decades. Uh, We do talk to our physicians about customer satisfaction, patient satisfaction, and I think we're making some great headway into making sure that that information is, put out, promoted, if you will, so that patients can see what they're going to get when they go to see a particular doctor, as opposed to not having any idea before they walk in the door.
2: Dr. Howell, you mentioned uh, the PCP and how that role has changed. It seems that, and I know that in our actionable data that you give us almost quarterly in the IPN, where we manage uh, significant, many thousands of lives, we see that the specialist referral cost is always one of our highest cost drivers. How do we convince and what are your thoughts on how can the PCP do more? Any thoughts That's on that? That's
7: a tough one there, Larry, because yeah. when you ask the PCP to do more, understand that the mm-hmm. PCPs are doing a lot as it is. They are. I think the way point. we get yeah. them to have, yeah, the way they get more ownership is to make sure they have more data to know what's actually happening outside of their doors. For example, if i just refer someone to a gastroenterologist but i have no idea how many tests that doctor does whether it's a laboratory or procedures okay. i may not be able to influence that once i have the information i can then have conversation with that that specialty physician and we can together collaborate on what's the best method or direction we need to take to manage your care to the utmost level
1: now that's a, that's a yeah. good that's a good mm-hmm. answer and i'm curious how, how far do we go here we we talk about you know educating our listeners how far do we go we, you know we, we've talked about they should they should ask about their bills they should ask about their co-pays what about this I mean is it are we in a, a community and a consumer environment that they can walk in and ask the physicians with I mean are you involved in value-based care I mean what, what I'm, I'm kind of loading the question but I'm, I'm curious what you think about that
7: I think I think we are in an environment. I think we should. There's too much money on the table that individuals, you and I, as patients spend. Too much money Absolutely. being wasted out yeah. in the in, in the healthcare environment. So I think you need to ask. We ask about everything else. So yeah. why should we be shy about asking about our healthcare dollars spent?
1: No, and that's think, very that's very encouraging because yeah. we talk about yeah. one of the goals of the show is try to we have, it's a money trail, right? Figure out how can we yeah. decrease this. And uh, and you just brought up a great a great point. I mean, you recognize, you know, coming from the the payer side, you recognize that challenge. And I mean, I think that's uh, that's really important, and it's a really a really good moment to to pause and let John take us to break. Yeah. So yeah, we let can me pick let this me up. kind of start oh, this off.
2: Yep. Yeah, Doctor Howell. As we come back, I want to talk about how important is that annual wellness visit for patients. We'll be right back.
3: Value based healthcare managing the better outcomes and better management of expenses. A lot to think about. Please share your comments with us at 407-701-7424 or email us now at orlandomedicalnews.com. We'll be right back.
0: It's not really a long surgery. The recovery time was practically nothing. Pretty much a piece of cake.
6: I look at my scar as my battle scar,
0: you know. I won the battle. Went from dust door to I'm me again. I am enjoying life. I can count on tomorrow.
7: Barostim is an option for heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. To learn more about the therapy and important safety information, please visit www.cvrx.com.
4: Angela Sells Orlando, also known as your realtor on call, Central Florida's relocation and luxury real estate specialist. Looking for concierge services? Relocating to Central Florida? Buying, selling, buying and selling? Helping to maximize your return and fighting for the best deal? Preferred lenders available. Specializing in relocation for physicians, healthcare professionals, and high net worth individuals. Assisting with location placement, school tours, banking and financial connections, introductions to athletic and social memberships, testimonials and references available upon request. Reach me 24 seven, text 407-616-3513 or email Angela at AngelaSellsOrlando.com. And always remember to connect on LinkedIn. Be healthy, be safe, and reopen this great nation's economy.
5: The Integrated Independent Physicians Network, preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, ipnetworkflorida.com. Looking for affordable or professional video
4: differentiating your business from competitors? Brand, improving online presence about me or professional videos. Sakatafilms.com, 407-860-3035.
5: Mark Chayot, M.D., practicing pediatric surgeon since 1997, working with Central Florida's premier hospital systems and outpatient surgery centers, providing unparalleled patient care and leveraging the latest in medical, technology, and education, accepting all major insurance. 407 228 seven seven four or visit orlandopediatricsurgery.com. Orlando Medical News, Central Florida's primary choice for professional healthcare news since 2005. Interested? Check out our website at OrlandoMedicalNews.com or give us a call at 407 701 7424.
0: Well, we've got your answer to navigating the healthcare world. Welcome
2: to Healthcare Now. Welcome back to Healthcare Now. We're talking with Dr. Michael Howell, Senior Medical Executive for Cigna Healthcare. And Dr. Howell, we left off at talking about how important is the annual wellness visit for patients.
7: You know, I think about the annual wellness visit and I've got mine scheduled probably sometime in May. It's like getting your your annual checkup on your vehicle. It lets you know what's going on, what sensors have been tripping and what you need to pay attention to. But for Certain age categories, it also is a reminder that I need to have certain preventive screens. My colonoscopy maybe be due. I'm a female or a lady. Uh, my pap smear or my breast exam, my mammogram. These are the things that we need to pay attention to. What's my blood pressure doing? Am I getting checked for di- pre-diabetes or am I managing my diabetes? The annual wellness check is critical to make sure that the human body, the engine that runs you as an individual, is purring along perfectly. And if we find things, we'll take the codes that we find, we'll evaluate them and say, we need to make some interventions to get your engine back in perfect running condition.
1: You know, it's historically, I think uh, patients uh, have walked in and when they've seen their their doctor, maybe they went in because they had a cold or they had some a cough and, and they went and they saw their doctor and that's not the annual wellness visit, but then- mm-hmm. When four weeks later they get the call that you haven't been in for your annual wellness visit, that causes a lot of confusion, and, and it is such a different thing. And I know that's partly manufactured by the fact that you, we have to plan these things out and the physicians have to address, you know, in the annual wellness visit, you just stated what they address, whereas in a, in a focused visit, it's completely different. And a couple of words from you, and we're not, we're not just trying to dip into the pockets of the patients again. It's, it's actually very, very important to know the difference.
7: I agree. We're actually talking to uh, employers and employees to really get them to understand how to prepare for that annual visit as well, what questions they may have, what tests they need to start looking out for. So when they walk into the doctor's office, they really know what they're looking for. And when they walk out, they will know that they got it because they went in there and they directly addressed it. So good point on that. Um, It's not a routine focus visit. It is about checking your engine out, your machine out to make sure call the human body, to make right. sure it's in top running
1: condition. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, people don't like to take the time to, to do this. And if they went and saw you for this one thing and you got an antibiotic, they, why don't you just do all those things? Right. And it really is an important message that that's just not how the system works efficiently, that you're we're going to miss things. And it's very important, so important, in fact, that on pretty much all the commercial payers, that annual wellness visit isn't a visit that they're charged for. Right, so it's it's part right. and parcel. That's right. Most insurers cover value. that, even yeah. the copay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it well, is a the, difference. The ACA covers it, so it, it says that you it doesn't you can't charge for it. So right. you can't charge for it. Yeah. That's Take right. advantage of it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Well, you know, Doctor Howell, uh, you mentioned that you're getting your uh, wellness visit in May. Uh, my birthday is in April, and every year in April. I get my annual wellness visit, and then we do the labs. And then six months later in October, we do a second lab follow-up with a lipid panel to make sure that the baseline labs are all in place and uh, that there are no chronic illnesses developing. And I think that's a good model for people to follow. Do it in the month of your birthday.
7: I agree. Now, I go out and I talk to the employer groups, and we talk about the cost of the spend that is associated with chronic diseases, And one of the key messages we always bring to them is you've got to find ways through either our programs or your programs to let your employees know that the wellness visit, the annual preventive visit has a purpose. And if you take care of it, if you participate in it, if you own it, you can find things that don't that early enough so they never become these severe chronic conditions. That raise the cost of health care for everybody right. so we, we, yeah, we talk Howell. about
1: being that, yeah we talk about being a society of reactive medicine, not proactive medicine and and every mm-hmm. one of us is at fault for that i mean it's it's nobody wants to take the time you know unless there's you know active bleeding, we're not going to go see anybody mm-hmm. you know so that is that's an incredibly important message, and it's something that that all the teams on all the sides have to have to espouse that mm-hmm. message to make it really work.
2: And, you know, Dr. Howell, if you recall, when uh, I was on the business advisory board in the insurance committee for Seminole County Schools, we came up with a program because less than 50% of the the employees, over 9,000 employees of the county, would even go get a wellness visit. Right. So what they Mm -hmm. did is Mm -hmm. they added the, if you were a normal, without an annual visit, you had a $1,500 deductible they changed the deductible to 750 if you got your annual wellness visit in the first 60 days of the following calendar year. And if you recall, 95% of the employees then got their annual wellness visit. So talk about incentives for members and patients for a second.
7: I'll make it personal for you. If there is, as a patient, if you put money in my pocket, I'm going to pay attention. And in the past, when we didn't have these incentives in our benefit structure, we really didn't have a carrot for folks. It was all the stick of you have to go to the doctor, wait in the waiting room. But with today's medicine, and you mentioned value-based care, that's another place where the physician has an opportunity to participate in that type of incentive because they'll create room, they'll create the time so that you can get the benefit of having a lower premium, a higher, a lower deductible for doing the right thing. So, you know, we've got to figure out what are the carrots that are important to people. In today's age, with going through the COVID pandemic, the downtime, the, the business shortage, stoppages, anytime you can put money back into an individual's pocket, real dollars, yep. it will move them to do some things that really benefit them.
1: Great. Now, that's good. That's a, that's a great message. That's and a good our, example. I yeah, yeah. hope our listeners really, really tie into that. So uh, let's jump to something. I know that you've talked about it probably every meeting that you've had in the, the last <laughs> year. And uh, how has the pandemic changed how Cigna evaluates its members regarding patient care? And what, what kind of programs have you initiated what, and what do we expect to see moving forward?
7: Well, one of the initial responses to the COVID-19 crisis and subsequent pandemic was to pivot our ACO model, our accountable care organization model, our value-based model, away from just looking at financial metrics uh, to chronic condition management, quality measures, and then strategizing how to make the maximal impact on populations most impacted by COVID. So we had to look at the folks who were impacted most, make sure and uh, their, through their insurance that they were able to access the care that was available for them, um, for the physicians, because we knew that their businesses declined, rather than remove the financial incentives from the program because the services weren't there, We wanted to go ahead and keep them whole. So we created our, revamped our our ACO program, if you will, Mm -hmm. to continue the incentives to help support the physicians because we knew they were going to rebound and we needed them to be as whole as possible so they could resume services as soon as possible. Um, at At the time of the required community shutdown, we chose to reinstate and even maintain some incentives for some of our programs. So some that didn't have them, we reinstated because, again, We knew the practices were losing some revenue, and we had to do everything for our community to keep it whole when we did reopen again. These are the things that companies do, payers do, to make sure, or that we did, I know for certain, to make sure that we took care of our communities to the highest degree.
2: Well, I know you led some of the initiatives, Dr. Howell, on what Cigna was doing when we realized that there was probably a four- to six-month period where people completely postponed care and your COVID Uh program certainly wanted to address that. But you guys were also one of the early adopters of telehealth and paying physicians the same amount for an office visit as you did for a telehealth. You want to talk about that for a minute?
7: Yeah. So when you talk about pivoting, you've got to look at what the needs are. If I can't get in to see you, can I get you to come see me? Or can I get right. to see you? Right, right, exactly. Way? So not physically, let's go electronically. We're not in a digital age. I mean, everyone's got a, a mobile device of some sort. Let's utilize them. Before the pandemic, the utilization of virtual care or telehealth or being able to receive health care by your mobile device was pretty much nil across the country. Right. With COVID, when we shut down, it shot up by over a thousand percent. I mean, just huge ramp up. And now that we're back to face-to-face business, we've seen it drop down, but it's not come back to that baseline of near zero. So we're finding that stocks and provider practices have figured out how to include this in the the tools that they use to take care of patients holistically.
1: Right. And I, I think that the, the physicians that have paid attention to this, it's, it's really benefited them. It's been a bit benefited their patients. And and hopefully, I know the, the goal. The goal is that, you know, we have a stronger year with these, these same practices and things. We can, we can move forward, get back to normalcy. What, what do doctors, we'll shift a little bit, and what do doctors need to understand to do differently in treating their patients in this new value-based environment of patient care? I mean, so we talked about what it is and how it can save money and improve, improve outcomes, but what do the doctors actually need to do?
7: So docs, docs have gone through a lot of change over the last few years, so I would tell docs this. First, to be successful doesn't mean you have to give up your independence. Um, however, you got to understand that the era of this singleton practice, practicing as a solo doc, is really starting to sunset. In some places has sunset completely. Again, this doesn't mean you have to sell your practice to become an employed practitioner, but we've got to find ways to work with others in the medical community. Second, we must find uh, appropriately responsible ways to work with employers in our community and understand the rising cost of health care can't continue unabated. We as physicians have the pen, and we're responsible for a portion of the rise. Thus, we have to use our PINs responsibly and understand if employers can't afford to provide good insurance for their employees, practices will see their revenues decline and forces um, and, and forces decisions that are uncomfortable and untenable to practice independence. No question. And third, I would yeah. say, while I stand for the House of Medicine, guarding the doors of clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. Providers and payers need to find creative ways to engage and receive a fair financial return for the work they, no they question. provide. No. Some Dr. of Howell, our work and compensation yeah. has to be tied to outcomes. Yep. 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 Wise Dr. Words. Howell,
2: uh, this has been so informative this morning, and we are just delighted that you have been on our show this morning. We'd hope to have you back again in the future. But thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yep, and next time we'll have you in the thank studio. You. <laughs>
3: Yeah, you can come to the studio next time. Love talking with you guys. Yeah, (laughs) thank Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, Dr. Hall.
4: Angela sells Orlando, also known as your realtor on call. Central Florida's relocation and luxury real estate specialist. Looking for concierge services? Relocating to Central Florida? Buying, selling, buying and selling? Helping to maximize your return and fighting for the best deal. Preferred lenders available. Specializing in relocation for physicians, healthcare professionals, and high net worth individuals. Assisting with location placement, school tours, banking and financial connections, introductions to athletic and social memberships. Testimonials and references available upon request. Reach me 24-7. Text four zero seven six one six three five one three or email angela at angela and always remember to connect on LinkedIn. Be healthy, be safe, and reopen this great nation's economy.
5: Are your annual wellness visits 60% completed? Medicare requires 60%. ThoughtSwift provides a turnkey solution, reducing AWVs five to twenty minutes. Software generated care plans, providing patient conversations and billing codes. Improving macro, MIPS, and HEDIS. Net $125 plus per AWV. Interested? John Fogarty, 609 605 6859. 609 605 6859.
0: It's not really a long surgery. The recovery time was practically nothing, pretty much a piece of cake.
6: I look at my scar as my battle scar, you know.
0: I won the battle. Went from dust door to I'm me again. I am enjoying life. I can count on tomorrow.
7: Barostim is an option for heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. To learn more about the therapy and important safety information, please visit www.cvrx.com. Welcome
0: to Healthcare Now.
3: Welcome back to Healthcare Now. Long before COVID, hospitals and healthcare facilities have focused on infection control and decontamination. Joining us this morning are Kathy Wary and Nelson Patterson. Kathy is the principal of Infection Prevention Partners. She is the founder where she advances the development and adoption of innovative solutions for the detection, prevention, and management of infection. In 2010, she was named one of the 100 most powerful people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare magazine. Nelson Patterson is a president and chief executive officer of Healthy Soul. Healthy Soul leverages ultraviolet C, commonly known as UVC, to disinfect and decontaminate. UVC light is chemical free and does not create germ mutations or antibiotic resistant superbugs. It is not visible to the human eye and has been proven effective in killing viruses, bacteria, mold, and spores. Kathy, you've been the CEO of APEC, the Association of Professionals in Infection Control. That's a Major League of Infection Control. What are the basics of good infection prevention?
8: A broad infection prevention program really needs to start with surveillance. You need to understand the prevalence of organisms of concern in your institution. That's really a foundational step. But beyond that, it's a host of multidimensional strategies designed to break the chain of transmission. We all know that good hand hygiene is the best way to prevent transmission. That's true both inside and outside of hospitals. Environmental disinfection is also a core strategy. And then more recently, we've really been focusing on antimicrobial stewardship. It's really imperative that we prevent the growth of antimicrobial resistance, and that has become uh, a core component of a broad infection prevention program as well.
1: Great. Hey, this is Dr. Mark here. This is a a really loaded question. I'm sure we could do an hour on this, but how has COVID changed the way that IP, IP professionals think about transmission?
8: So this virus is unlike anything we have ever encountered in the past. Um, and that's because infection can be transmitted by people who show absolutely no signs or symptoms of infection. That's that's really groundbreaking. Um, and it can also be transmitted via the air over much longer distances than most most pathogens, even other viruses. Um, And, you know, there's an increasing amount of evidence. We first heard that we needed to do three feet of social distancing. Then it was six feet of social distancing. um, And now I'm seeing evidence to suggest that even six feet isn't enough. So that airborne component is making people rethink airborne bioburden, which I think has really been underappreciated up to this point outside of the operating room. It also calls into question whether or not we're adequately addressing other underappreciated reservoirs of risk. And I would put floors and shoes in this category because there's constant interplay between the air, floors, surfaces, hands, all of that.
3: Well,
2: you know, I want to kind of this is Larry. I want to switch over to Nelson. You know, I have a daughter that was germaphobic long before the pandemic ever started with four kids. And don't you think that this pandemic and this has taken this thing to a whole new level?
6: Oh, it absolutely has, Larry. There's no doubt that when you think about how individuals look at each other today, we make comments on whether people wear masks, we make comments on whether people wash their hands adequately or long enough. Right now, everyone is thinking about how do I prevent getting it a second time or how do I prevent getting a new mutation or variant? And I think that the way that people look at how they conduct their lives is radically changing and it will impact yes. us for years to
2: come. No question.
1: Now, when we talk about the shoes and floors, I mean, let's, it kind of, it kind of makes some, some great sense. And I know that we've touched on this before in other shows, but uh, talk to me a little bit about the theory behind exactly what you're doing and, and why the, the transmission selection of uh, knocking out the floors is so important.
6: When, when you think about shoes and floors, As Kathy already noted, they're underappreciated reservoirs of risk when it comes to infection prevention and control. A nurse or a physician who enters a hospital may have on shoes that they have worn for a walk in the park or maybe just around their yard or even through the grocery store. They come into work, they dress uh, appropriately for the task that they're going to be performing, and then they're wearing the same shoes. They may take all of the right precautions to go through scrub. They may have all of the right precautions in prepping a patient. But if when you walk into an OR or you walk into a contact-sensitive patient room and you still have on shoes that have pathogens that you're bringing in from outside, you're reinfecting that environment. Studies have shown that shoes can contain more dense pathogen load than any other object in the hospital. And that means that when you go from room to room, from a clean area to dirty area, or vice versa, or when you go from hospital to home, you actually can be tracking pathogens and infectious agents on your shoes back out and taking that home to your family or loved one. So
1: I'm, I'm a pediatric surgeon, so my, my, my home, in a sense, is the OR theater. And if you were to track my day in the OR. You, you just described it. I'm walking around different areas. You know, if, if I'm at the hospital, I'm rounding on patients. So Kathy, maybe a, a little bit of discussion about the air in the in the OR theater and how important this is and how it plays into what, what, what yeah. we just talked about with Nelson.
2: But Dr. Mark, before Kathy answers that, talk to us about the shoe coverings that you wear in the OR.
1: Well, I mean, the shoe coverings, everything that we use are only as good as how we use them. So if people put a shoe cover on and they, they're covering up a dirty shoe, they're touching their shoe, they're, you know, they're moving things around there. And then if they don't change the shoe covers when they go to that new environment, which could be across the hall, it, it doesn't really work. And with PPP being, I'm sorry, that throws me off, the PPE uh, being such a, a difficult issue, people were reusing, you know, wearing shoe covers for too long. And I'm sure that's something that, that both of you could comment on. Yeah, same with masks. Yep.
8: Yeah, so I would say that in the operating room, we've known for you know many years that airborne bioburden contributes to surgical site infection, that those pathogens land in the wound and they infect the wound and patients develop surgical site infections. So there's been a lot of emphasis on reducing airborne bioburden in the operating room. But if you look at other high-risk areas of the hospital the ICU um, hallways outside of isolation rooms where these really concerning pathogens are, you know, multi-drug resistant pathogens, we're still using ventilation technology that was developed in the 1960s. You know, we're mixing clean air with contaminated air and thinking that if we can increase the number of air exchanges, that we're keeping patients, and I would say healthcare personnel as well, are really important in this, um, from risk. But that's just not really true. We don't measure airborne uh, bioburden in the operating room or in these other high-risk areas. Um, and But I think with COVID-19, there's been tremendous new emphasis on the need for better ventilation, and we're seeing better technologies coming onto the market. So I think we're going to be able to um, not only reduce airborne contamination in the operating room even further, but address these other high-risk areas where we know that there are pathogens that are creating Healthcare associated infections and other types of issues in the institution.
1: I mean, fear has been a great motivator for uh, the entire population. Uh, set aside just the healthcare professionals, but to your point, I think this is going yes, to be yes, something yes. that changes. And we to need everything. to be
8: motivated to protect healthcare professionals as well. You know, a mask it shouldn't be the best we can do for them. Um, other supplemental strategies, whether it's air or floors or disinfecting shoes, really need to be part of that equation.
2: Well, you know, it's it's a given that uh, you can catch diseases in the hospital. And, they, and there's the old saying is the longer you stay in the hospital, the sicker you might get. But let's talk about what the employer can do in the way of disinfectant and con- infection control.
6: You know, one of the interesting uh, aspects of COVID has been the concern around contamination has moved from just something that people thought of in, like, a food handling area or a healthcare environment to even offices. We've we've received many calls from office and building managers saying, listen, my team gathers in the kitchen, or not everyone keeps the floor and the bathrooms as clean as they should, or, you know, the shoes that they wear in when they enter the building, We've just decontaminated the whole building with a very expensive technology. And the moment they walk in, they're recontaminating it. What can we do? And now we're looking at how we can make that happen using Healthy Soul Plus. In just eight seconds, you can kill up to 99.99% of the pathogen on the soles of shoes.
8: It's that easy.
3: Well, thank you, Kathy and Nelson, for spending your morning with us. If our audience has questions, how can they reach you?
8: You can find me on my website, which is www.infectionpreventionpartners.com.
3: www.infectionpreventionpartners.com. And Nelson?
6: You can find us at www.healthysoul.com. That's S-O-L-E.com.
3: Awesome. Fantastic, guys. Another great Saturday morning. Larry, you've got some exciting information to share with our audience about next week. I do. Dr. Mark and I and and our producer,
2: John, will be moving to the 1 to 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon time frame after this show this week, uh, May 1st. So in May 8th, we're moving from 7 to 8 to 1 to 2 p.m., and that's just a tribute to how successful and how we have become one of the most
3: central healthcare talk shows in Florida. Thank you to our amazing guests this morning, Dr. Michael Howell, the medical senior director. And he Mar- was awesome. Yeah, that was yep. great. And market executive with Cigna Healthcare. Kathy Wary, the principal of Infection Prevention Partners. And Nelson Patterson, a good friend of mine, the president and CEO of Healthy Soul. Absolutely. Really appreciate them. Today's sponsors are Nelson and Nick with Healthy Soul Decontamination. Raul and Kevin with CVRX, and Angela with Angela Sells Orlando. And thank you to my co-host, Dr. Mark with Pediatric Surgery PA, and Larry Jones with the Integrated Independent Physicians Network. I also need to recognize our advertising partners, Diana with Cicado Films, John with Rx2Live, April and Mary Catherine with Counseling Resource Services, and myself, John Kelly, with the Orlando Medical News Larry, do you have a final thought for our audience? I do. Take time to
2: become an informed healthcare consumer. And don't forget, we're moving our show next week to the 1 p.m. time frame. Afternoon slot. See you next week. See Thank ya. you.
0: You feel better now? We hope you do. Join us again next week for Healthcare Now. For a podcast of this program, go to TheAnswerOrlando.com.
2: Are you concerned about healthcare skyrocketing expenses? Monthly premiums approaching $2,000? Out of pocket expenses up 50% the past 10 years? Introducing Healthcare Now, the truth about U.S. healthcare. Join the discussion, 7 to 8 a.m. Saturday mornings on AM 950 and FM 94.9. Co hosted by IPN's Mark Chayette and Larry Jones, and Orlando Medical News' John Kelly.